This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 261. Earth Detox is our theme today. We couldn't get bigger picture than that. And I have journalist and author Julian Cribb joining me today. Julian is an AM. He is an Australian author, science communicator. He is the principal of Julian Cribb and Associates, who provide international consultancy in communications of science, agriculture, food, mining, energy, and the environment. If that's not enough, he's also a fellow of the UK Royal Society for the Arts, the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering, and the Australian National University Emeritus Faculty. Uh, He's, as I said, a member of the Order of Australia as well. So what I am so excited to have Julian here to talk to you about today is uh, the really big stuff. Someone who has spent their entire career as a scientific editor of an Australian newspaper, uh, director of national awareness for the CSIRO, editor of several newspapers, uh, including National Farmer and Sunday Independent, sits on numerous scientific boards and advisory panels, president of national professional bodies for agricultural journalism and science communication, And he has published over 9,000 articles, 3,000 science media releases, and 12 books. He's also received 32 awards for his journalism. So this man knows how to ask the questions that are required to find the answers that we need. And uh, long-form investigative journalism, big-picture thinking uh, might seem really rare these days, uh, but I can assure you there are still incredible journalists out there doing really meaningful work and helping us see what the real issues are, what the real stakeholders are, who the potential influences might be that are preventing change or progress, and what we can do to get this and get ourselves out of massive pickles. Uh, so I'm going to be jumping into the conversation with Julian about um all of those things. Really, Earth Detox might be the name of his most recent book, but we're certainly not just talking about um, a book and its chapters. We have a very uh, big ranging conversation. So I know you guys are going to love that. Um, It could be equal parts terrifying as it is exciting to know what we need to do and where we need our focus to be. Uh, But before that, I just want to remind you, you have another couple of weeks of me talking to you about the wonderful Helen Marshall and her business, Primal Alternative. It's essentially a licensing business where a family of primalistas, they're called, home bakers, uh, help to localize the food system in the sense that not only are they preparing very allergy-friendly foods, a lot, um, you know, grain-free, a lot of dairy-free, etc. So you have that potential specific diets, healing diets, uh, protocol diets need um, met with the Primalista network. Um, but you also have the localization of food. You're getting something much fresher, something made from whole ingredients delivered to your door that day or the very next, uh, for you to use fresh rather than, uh, long life products from the supermarket. So I really, really love the health aspect of this business. I also love that it's a licensing business. So when someone becomes a primal alternative baker, joins the team as a primalista, uh, you don't then have to recruit other people to make yourself successful you have a license, you get all your recipes, resources, all of the tools that help you plug into the network to literally start baking and earning money from the very next week. And there are very few businesses that are close to cash positive from the get-go. And this really is one of them. So if starting a business has daunted you and all of the things that you have to do to make that happen, uh, and uh, boy, do I know how many things are required to make a small business happen with uh, becoming a primal alternative uh, baker, 
you plug into an existing business and you hit the ground running. So orders that come through on the website, if that's you that's closest in the territory of where that order came from, you will be the baker. And then, of course, you can build your own network, your own relationships with uh, local health food shops, local supermarkets. Uh, I know you find Primal Alternative Goods all over the place now. So it's not just privately delivered to people's homes, but the local health shop might decide to stock the ready-made pastry for their freezer or um, sell the biscuits. So there's a whole bunch of things um, that uh, are potential in this uh, business. And I want to direct you to a free info pack that uh, Helen has put together uh, so that you can check out that business opportunity in more detail if you wanted to start something for a while and you just need a bit of support to get going and you think, actually, that works and I really love the ethos and uh, the network of people that I would be joining. It's like you get to have all these instant colleagues all over the world. Um, She's got an info pack. So primalalternative.com forward slash info pack. And for anyone that does become a primalista this month, she has a, a, a huge amount of bonuses for you. So a baking starter kit worth, uh, I think it's $620 where you get the um, organic apron, you get the one-on-one coaching session with Helen, you get six primal alternative bread tins, 200 compostable cellophane bags, and 100 personalized labels to get you through your first few bakes. So that's kind of what I mean about that cash positive aspect. Yes, of course, purchasing the license and getting going is one cost, but you get to start making money straight away. And in small business, that can sometimes take a year or two before you make your first sale. So it's huge. Um, there are also a $1,000 worth of digital bonuses, uh, including Helen's signature health coaching courses, thriving, set and forget, uh, um, uh, business blueprints, and so much more. I'm kind of going, uh, because there is literally so much in this beautiful offer. So download primalalternative.com forward slash info hyphen pack forward slash. I've also got the details in the show notes for you. So do check it out if that sounds like it's piqued your interest. Um, what a beautiful way of localizing some of those um, long life, uh, far ranging, long transported uh, products um, and getting it really, really local to you from beautiful whole ingredients. Enjoy today's show with Julian. I can't wait to hear what comes out of this for you as uh, some of the priorities in your own life to make changes with. Hello, Julian. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Alex. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And um, as I've been researching you in the lead up to our impending conversation, I am absolutely flabbergasted as to how one human brain could have so thoroughly (laughs) explored, researched and written books about literally the biggest challenges of our time. So thank you for putting that work in. Well, I've uh, I had to do it. I was compelled, and I've done it as well. I'm I've been writing about science for nearly fifty years, and uh, you know it's like collecting stamps. The more you have, the more you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've just published my second book, so um, it sounds like I need to already be thinking about my third. There you go. Well, this um, will be my sixth book that I'm writing at the moment on the question of human survival and the challenges that we face. Mm, and it's uh, it's one of those things for me, and I'm sure we'll talk about this as uh, the interview progresses, but I notice a lot of granular, tiny little detailed nitpicky conversations uh, and I am always trying to see, you know, we need to be looking from the outside in, we need to be working on it, not in it, uh, and really use some big picture systems thinking to transition how we need to transition but in a way that doesn't that leaves the least amount of people behind you're absolutely right i mean science studies the intricate detail of the world that we live in but sometimes you have to put it all together uh, to get the big picture and to understand what is happening to that world and that is really what i've been doing the last 10 15 years is assembling all of the science that I was in contact with. I, I mean, I've spoken to tens of thousands of scientists in my time and read countless papers and, and articles by them. Um, and basically, I've tried to assemble the most likely case 
for where the human species is heading. Mm. And it's not a pretty picture, I have to say. No, it's then not. And I also applied myself to how do we get out of this? How do we yeah. how do we deal with the problems that we've brought upon ourselves? Yeah. Were you a kid who always asked why? Where does this uh, unrelenting desire to figure it all out come from, do you think? Well, uh, I once confessed on a radio interview that I used to read encyclopedias when I was a kid, so I must have been... <laughs> um, <laughs> I've always had a bit of a thirst for knowledge. I have to say that. And being a journalist working in science for many years, it is because I'm fascinated. If you're a news journalist, you know, you tend to end up reporting the same old story, politics, economics, same story, different characters. Mm. Science, everything is new. Everything Mm. you are finding out about the world, about the human body, about outer space, whatever it is, you know, it's always new. It's, It's surprising. It's astonishing. Uh, the way you thought about the world isn't the way it actually is. So you're 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 being filled up with with new knowledge whenever you talk uh, to scientists. Well, yeah, and science is a movable feast as well. It is a question rather than a fact most of the time. Yeah, most people don't quite understand that. They think that science delivers truth. Mm. It doesn't. Science delivers the best guess that we can make based upon the evidence that we've got today. Mm. If we get new evidence tomorrow. We'll change our view of the world. Uh, Yeah, and so and how do you feel that that has been um, tarnished as more money has been able to come into politics? You know, I mean, look at Citizens United in the States as uh, as, um, um, a ruling. You look at um, undisclosed financial campaign donations and all these sorts of things. And now that we know that all of these things exist, it muddies the waters even more, doesn't it? Oh, it certainly does. I mean, the uh, tobacco industry mm. uh, had a whole lot of tame scientists back in the 1960s, 70s and 80s to try to confuse people as to why they were getting lung cancer. They <laughs> told them that it was their fault, that, they, they, that, that lung cancer was caused by the victim, not caused by the cigarettes. Mm, just like Coca-Cola t- telling you to take personal responsibility but please help us continue to grow our profits while you actually do end up getting diabetes. Yeah, well, so, so uh, I mean, scientists are susceptible to, to paid large wads of money by industry uh, and, and then doing industry's bidding. And that there is no industry where that happens more than in chemistry. I'd say most chemists, qualified chemists, work for industry and they produce the chemicals that industry tells them to produce not the chemicals they would necessarily like to produce. And they don't test the safety of those chemicals in the way that most of them would like to do because industry wants to get them out in the market and sell them for a heap of money. Uh, so it, it is a real problem. Um, but at the same time, there are other scientists who are just doing it for the good of the human species. Absolutely. And they are testing the knowledge that we've got and they're exposing things. And we can talk about many things that they're exposing in the chemical area. Um, that we really didn't want to know, but it's time we found out if we're to stop them, you know, harming and killing us. Absolutely. So your book, uh, Earth Detox, uh, your latest book, I should say, given you have several, several, uh, it really piqued my interest uh, when I came across it uh, because I've personally been researching environmental toxins and various chemicals for the past 15 years that make their way into our personal care, into our cleaning, into our renovation materials, building materials. Um, and, uh, and it, for a long time, has felt like a niche concern among mums. Uh, that's certainly the majority of my community, women who think, hold on, but I've had all these hormone problems. It can't be right that we're all having all these hormone problems. Let's look a little deeper. And people like me that go, yes, come look over here. You don't want this on your label. You want to go for this, you know, helping people make changes. Uh, and your book, frankly, is um, is an incredible expose. It is so comprehensive as to just how big the problem is in chemistry and how much uh, negative impacting um, chemistry has started to infiltrate our planet, pervade our planet's probably a better word. It's everywhere. Um, How did you start unpacking this topic uh, as a writer? Because 
I mean, it, it must have just been half the battle in something like this is to decide what to present, how to present it, because you could write so much. I could, and it was hard getting it into one book. Mm. Look, uh, there are two clues as to why I got involved. One is that I've been an agricultural journalist since the early 1970s. I was aware that agriculture was replacing a lot of things that it did, like ploughing, with chemicals. You know, now farmers don't plough, they spray chemicals to kill the weeds. Um, So there was an awful lot more chemicals being used in agriculture, uh, you know, today than there were, in fact, there's five million tonnes of highly toxic chemicals used worldwide in agriculture. Um, And so I was aware of that as an agricultural writer. The second thing is that I had a client for a long time, uh, the CRC CARE, CRC for Contamination Assessment and Remediation of the Environment, which is a team of scientists around Australia uh, who are working on cleaning up the mess that we've been left with. So when we, when I say the mess, I mean old oil refineries, old factory sites, um, you know, old gasometers, old service stations, everywhere you've had petrochemicals, basically, there is a horrid toxic mess in the subsoil and it's getting into the water supply and the water supply very often is being drunk by people. So, you know, uh, the, under the under any city you go, you go to in the world, you will find a horrible polluted mess from the last hundred years of industrial development. So these guys were trying to clean that up and uh, working with them, I began to understand how very large this problem was, but nobody could tell me how big it was. So I thought, well, I'd better try and find out. So I I really went through the best science I could find worldwide in the best universities and institutions. And basically I I came up with, I think it's the world's first estimate of human chemical emissions. And it's about 120 to 220 billion tonnes of chemicals are emitted by human activity every single year. Okay, now, that is five times the size of our climate emissions, okay? And those chemicals are not doing us any good because, and get this, and I'm I'm quoting the Lancet and the World Health Organization, those chemicals are killing between 10 and 13 million people every single year, which is the worst case of mass killing in the history of the human race, okay? So it's much worse than World War II, almost twice as bad as World War II in terms of the number of people killed. So this is going on under our very noses and we're all, you know, we're all culpable because we all use chemicals every single day of our lives and we are surrounded by the things. Every breath you take, you are inhaling toxic vapours. Every breath you take, every mouthful of food, every drink, even water from the tap, you're taking in a whole lot of chemicals that you really didn't, didn't want to know about and and there are so many of them I mean the human uh, the the industry that produces them uh, has actually manufactured no fewer than 350,000 separate chemicals at last count the latest count that that came out only a few months ago so I mean it's a prodigious number of of these things that are being produced They're, they're mostly made from petroleum some of them are made from coal So they mainly originate with fossil fuels. Um, They're not tested for human safety, most of these. The United Nations Environment Programme states that they are not tested tested for human safety. So we're being exposed to tens of thousands of things every day of our lives and without knowing whether it's safe or not. Uh, We are the guinea pigs in a gigantic planet-wide chemistry experiment. Mm. And, you know, for me, this is, again, why we need to go big picture on these things and really look at the biggest drivers. I've just put out a book on food uh, literally today uh, at the time of recording, so it would have been a couple of weeks ago by the time we go live. And I wanted to really transcend the bickering around, well, you know, you need this many litres for that thing and of water and this much for this and that much carbon and just go higher up to really find out the big drivers that unite us all. And one of the biggest was ultra-processed foods because the average shopping trolley has around 55 to 60% ultra-processed food in it. And the petroleum 
involved in packaging that and shipping it around the world from the raw materials, uh, from the even from the agricultural chemicals in the monocultures of fields to, you know, that these raw materials come from. Uh, it's absolutely mind-boggling. And then what you end up is with a soft plastic endocrine disruptive packaged nightmare um, with highly undernourishing food. Uh, and it's just so broken. Uh, and, you know, and we don't talk, we keep fighting about soya beans versus beef. And this thing is just so much bigger. Um, and, and we could actually really unite and do something super productive if we all focused on these, these big, big issues. Yeah. Well, let me explain where, where it all comes from. I mean, basically, if you took my lifetime as a measure, in the year that I was born, 1950, there were 2.5 billion human beings on the planet. And there's now nearly 8 billion, right? So the human population has tripled in my lifetime. And the consumption of those people, of metals and timber and chemicals and food and all of that, that's actually increased nearly tenfold. Believe it or not. I mean, uh, I, as an Australian, a modern Australian citizen, consume 10 times the materials that my grandparents consumed back in the 1920s or something. So, so, so we've become a phenomenally, you know, so, so there's a three, threefold increase because of population and a tenfold increase because of the modern, you know, uh, industrial society that we've become. And, and so, you know, it's 30 times more stuff that we're using now than we were using 100 years ago, basically. So, you know, no wonder the world's in trouble. You know, so a lot of that is carbon that's being released that's changing the climate, right? But we're also releasing toxic chemicals in large scale. And as you say, they are causing diseases that we really, you know, these diseases weren't a problem 50 or 100 years ago. Um, you know, they might have existed at very low levels in the population. But things like ADHD, autism, uh, things like, you know, just the various cancers that we've got, all of these things are out of control at the moment. Depression is, is another one. Brain diseases mainly because many of the chemicals that we've released are what's known as neurotoxins. They are nerve poisons. And what they do is they poison particularly the growing brain, the brain of children, the brains of children. When they're in that very precious phase between, um, well, be being conceived and about four or five years old when the brain is becoming more mature, at that stage, the brain takes up whatever is in its environment, unfortunately. And if there's mm -hmm. pesticide in the mother's milk, and we know there's pesticide in mother's milk all around the world, then the, the baby gets it, you know, the, its first mm -hmm. feed that it has off its mother. When it comes into the world, it is born already carrying a cargo of industrial pollutants and, and poisons. It's absolutely bizarre. They've tested the blood from the, from the um, umbilical. Yeah, the umbilical cords. And they found, yeah. you know, horrendous things, cancer-causing chemicals in the blood of the umbilicus. And, you know, so we're bringing our children into the world already poisoned. Mm. And, and it's having an, an horrendous effect on us. And, and no wonder we're starting to see diseases come through now that we never saw in, the, in past history, or certainly not the scale. Certainly not at the scale. I, I fully agree. Um, and uh, that was a, a rather frightening deluge of, of sentences you just spoke. And, and I always, um, I, I think it's important for us to feel the weight of those words as much as it's important for us to then think about what we can do, right? Um, but before we move on to that uh, positive can-do aspect of what the future might look like and the part that we can all play in that, I'd like to unpack a couple of things. And you, we were talking before about growth and the fact that you, the population has grown threefold in your lifetime and uh, as has consumption along with that. Uh, and it brings me to the question, and I know you've written on this, researched it, and um, and have a, a, a deep understanding of the problem because I saw you actually sharing a couple of articles on the subject just last week on Twitter, and that was GDP theory and endless economic growth and how uh, how 
unbelievably unsustainable that is uh, for us to be caught in this system. And I wanted to ask you if you had any ideas, perhaps it's going to be coming in this next book you're writing, about how we can transition out of that big um, global uh, growth um, system uh, into more closed loop networks, localized networks, localized economy, uh, and self sufficiency to a degree for those of us who can. Um, how, how do we do that without tanking the entire world? Um, you know, is there a way? It's not as hard as, as it sounds, actually. Okay. Yes, it, it's quite easy. I'm liking the sound of this. The thing to yeah. do is to realize that our growth in the 20th and early 21st century has been based upon material goods. So we have decided if we want to get rich, then we need more coal, more iron ore, more materials to build things, you know, more concrete, et cetera, et cetera. So we're just using too much stuff. And as I said, we're using 30 times as much stuff as we were using 100 years ago. And that's ridiculous because the planet cannot supply it, right? We're We're running out of all of those things, particularly we're running out of water. We're running out of forests. We're running out of fish. We're running out of, you know, most of the big resources when you think about it. Um, but the simple answer is, is, is what's known as the circular economy. Instead of throwing things away, you use them again and again and again. Just like we used to recycle bottles in, in the good old days, and the aluminium industry re- recycles 86%. Old tin cans go straight back into the furnace and get turned into motor car engines or something like that. So, you know, the aluminium industry is very good at recycling. Um, We can actually do that for almost everything material. We can recycle timber. We can recycle clothing. We can recycle. We can even recycle food. I mean, at the moment, we're throwing all our food. We throw away. We waste about a third to to forty percent of our food. Yeah, this was this is the second big subject in my book that I cover. Yeah. And, and, and then, of course, we, we send, you know, our, 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 our waste to landfill where you could never get it back again, right? And Or else we put it down the sewer pipe and it goes into the ocean and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean. So we can never use those nutrients again. So if you could simply design a city that recycled the nutrients, it caught all the waste, whether it's, uh, you know, unwanted food that, you know, gets thrown out the back of the restaurant uh, at the end of the night or or bread that's not eaten in the supermarket or something like that, if you simply broke broke that down into its essential nutrients, you could compost it, you could turn it into fertiliser, you can do this a hundred ways. But if you recycle the nutrients and you recycle the water that is used by a big city like Sydney or Brisbane or uh, Shanghai or Singapore, very good example because Singapore is doing it, uh, you know, You've got a food supply there that is that is going to go on and on and on because it's just simply reusing the same old nutrients, you know. Uh, and and that's an example of a circular economy at work. Well, Kate Rayworth, a British economist, comes up with this idea of a donut economy, which incorporates concepts such as human equity and, and fairness and and things like that. Quite a few very important things because equity is actually very important. You know, if people feel that they're equal you know, then they're much more prepared to cooperate with the society. It's only when people feel they've been dudded, you know, ripped off, oppressed, exploited, whatever, they get angry and they, and they refuse to cooperate, basically. So we want, we want everybody to recycle. We've got to treat them fairly. That's the essence of this. So, so Kate Rayworth is a, is a pretty good idea. Now, the other element to this is you can have economic growth without having material growth, because the human mind is inexhaustible. Exactly. And this is what I'm interested in. Very cool. Transition then from the material economy, the stuff economy, to the ideas economy, right? Mm -hmm. So when I say ideas, I'm talking about movies, I'm talking about theatre and talking about uh, uh, media and communication. I'm talking about science. I'm talking about the arts. Uh, I'm even talking about sport. Uh, all of these things are, to some degree, things that, things of the mind, and they don't involve a lot of physical resources, mm. unlike motor cars and unlike you know, you know, furniture and stuff like that. They don't. You can use the resources they take over and over again. So we we transition the world economy 
to an economy of the mind, what are the advantages? First of all, the jobs are much better. Mm. Right? You know, you, you're not slaving in a filthy factory getting poisoned by, you know, chemicals. Phthalates. Yeah, exactly. You, you've got a pleasant job. It might involve a computer and a screen and things like that or something else, or it might involve ballet, as you say. It might involve, uh, you know, playing rugby league. But mm. it's, it, you know, all of these things, it's a much more pleasant way of life and humans, uh, you know, will find it far more rewarding. Mm. You know, but they need to get fairly paid for those new jobs. And, and, and that's what's happening. I mean, when I grew up, no, nobody who played rugby got paid, you know. <laughs> it was, I know. It, and yeah. now it seems so grossly overpaid. Yeah, but, but, mm. but, but now in the ideas economy, you pay people for their ideas, for their talent, for mm. their skills. You know, you don't pay them for how much, how many teapots they made. You know? Of course. And, I mean, we're already seeing that with young people, uh, you know, creating YouTube channels and just going direct to consumer. And if you connect with my music, you can pay me through my Patreon account. Uh, so you can definitely see it starting to happen. And what I love, I think that's just such a key phrase as we move from being uh, an economy of the material stuff to an economy of the mind. And uh, and that, for me, conjures up an exciting shift in the education system, uh, in all sorts. Um, how do we convince the fossil fuel industry and politicians to get on board with this? Well, the fossil fuel industry is finished. It does, doesn't know it. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, it's brought a whole lot of politicians all around the world yeah. to, to, to push its uh, barrow for it. Uh, so until those corrupt people are out of politics, uh, we're going to have some troubles. Uh, I mean, so would you say the, choosing very, very discerningly who we vote for is one of the single biggest things we can do right now to transition it, to a fairer world? It is. And, and summing it up very briefly, uh, the party system tends towards corruption. Because every party basically operates in its own self-interest or in the interest of people that think like that party. So the best thing you can do is vote for a decent independent somebody who cares about their country, about their community, about the issues that you care about, uh, and is prepared to go into parliament to serve the people rather than rip the people off, which most of those politicians are there to do. They've got their snouts so far in the trough, you can hardly see their backsides. So, so really, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, th these are, it is up to us. But let me say it's up to us in two ways, because you know, we actually vote every single day of the week and, and know this. When we go into a shop and we buy some food or we buy some clothing or we buy anything, anything, we are actually voting for whether we want a sustainable world or an unsustainable world. If you want a safe, clean, green, sustainable world, you probably buy the organic veggies, you know, or you'll buy the organic cotton or something like that, because you don't want to spread pesticide around. And you want to send a signal to the farmers who are doing it saying, we approve. I, as a consumer, approve of what you're doing, and I'm going to reward you by giving you my dollar. And that sends a signal all the way through the big uh, shops and, 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 the, and the wholesalers and things like that. So you actually, you're, the dollar you spend on a sink any day is terribly important. It's even more important than your vote at election time. So trying to change the government is a very difficult thing. Yes. <laughs> difficult for the individual to achieve. Mm. Um, so, so, but, but you know, uh, if you go into the supermarket today, you will see in the, in the poultry section all these different kinds of eggs, free-range eggs, organic eggs, cruelty-free eggs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That was not done because poultry farmers wanted it. They hated the idea. Mm. Humans said, we want cruelty-free poultry, please. 100%. So the RSPCA got involved. We want chemical-free poultry. So organic uh, certification came in. Um, we don't want chickens to be locked up for life in, in uh, three-by-three cages. So, of course, free range came in. So, you know, I mean, consumers can express their, the power of their, mm. their dollar and they can change the behaviour of big corporations. That's my point. We have it within us to change that behaviour. We absolutely do. I've seen it so many times over the last 12 years since publicly researching and writing about this stuff. I remember Hershey's ditching the GMO sugar beet. 
I remember M&Ms announcing they were getting rid of the synthetic petroleum-based food colourings. And it wasn't because they wanted to. It's, of course, a higher profit for them to keep things exactly as they were. But it's because we said, no, this doesn't fly with us and we're going to stop buying it. And they have the decision to make, do we stay in business uh, and change things or do we sink and um, jump ship? Well, let me tell you about something else which is terribly important to all of our futures. Yes, please. It it, it is a, a decision that is being taken around the world at this very moment by tens or hundreds of millions of women. They've decided that they are either going to have fewer babies or no babies at all. Mm. Uh, in 1975, there were the average woman produced 4.4 babies. Wow. Okay. Today, it's 2.4 babies mm. going down. Once it's at 2.1 babies, we are below replacement. We're at or below replacement, mm. which means that the population will start to contract. We are due to hit that point if all being well, you know, anything can change. But at the moment, women are deciding not to have children. When I say Mm. women, the men don't have a say in this. The women have decided this autonomously. The Mm. women of the world have decided to have fewer kids because that's what they wanted. And they didn't tell the men. They just said, oh, well, two's enough, dear, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I was a one-hit wonder. (laughs) And, well, many people are, and many young people are saying to me, I'm not going to have children. It'll be interesting to see whether, you know, when the, when the biological clock ticks, whether they can endure uh, that. But I think many of them are serious. That You know, young women today say, I want a career, I want a life. Uh, I, I don't want to have uh, a baby like my, my mother or my grandmother. So, you know, I mean, it's, some wonderful things are happening. But just follow that line into the future and see what happens when we get to 2060 and the population hits the peak and it starts to come slowly down. At that point, we don't need to open another mine anywhere in the world. Why? Because all the metal that we will ever need can be got out of the waste stream. So again, this is where our circular economy comes in. We mine the old garbage tips, you know, they're full of metal. Uh, you, you, you'll take your mobile phone into the store, you already do it, and swap it for a new one, and they take the valuable rare metals out and put them in a new phone. So, you know, designing things to be recycled is, is big now. And, and, you know, we're talking about electric cars. Electric car batteries are being designed to be recycled. So the pollution problems are not going to be anywhere near as bad as they are with, with uh, petrol-driven cars. So you can see that the importance of getting the human population down, all sorts of, we stop consuming stuff and we start recycling stuff in a big way and we start to fix the problem. So, you know, it, it, you know good on you. The women of the world have shown leadership, get that human population down and a lot of good things will start to happen, will follow suit. Absolutely, which I think is why, Uh, a focus on educating girls is one of the single biggest things we can do for the health of the planet into the future. Education, healthcare, available contraception and family planning advice, Mm. they must be universal. Now, they're pretty easy to obtain in Australia. Uh, They're difficult to obtain in some African countries and some countries with strong cultural or religious values, you know, so it's still a struggle for many women. But Take it from me, they're doing it regardless of what the the preacher is telling them to do. Mm. Preachers, governments and and, and greedy people in in business want you to have more kids. But if humans are to survive, they must just stop having kids because we are currently, the the long-term carrying capacity of the human species, of the earth for the humans, Mm. is around about two, two and a half billion. Wow. It was when I was born. Yeah. We've got to get from from eight or 10 billion back down to two and a half by the middle of next century, or else destroy the place and Mm. we'll come down anyway. The population will crash. So, this is, we can do it voluntarily or we can do it involuntarily. It's basically that. And the involuntarily part will involve, no doubt, devastation and destruction on multiple fronts, no? Yes, indeed. There's a rather good little story about um, there's an island uh, up in Canada called St. Matthew's Island, a little 
40 hectares or something, and somebody introduced a couple of dozen reindeer to it right. long ago, and the reindeer population blew out until it was around about 42,000. Goodness. And they completely ate the island bare until it was just rock. Mm. Then the population just crashed and they ended up with, I think, six or 12 reindeer. And I think there's none there today. So now that's what happens to normal biology. That's what happens to lemmings. You know, that's what happens to mouse plagues. That's what happens to locust swarms. You know, the population booms and then it collapses. Now, human beings are a biological entity. We're, we're absolutely subject to the same rules as everyone. Oh, yeah, we're not above it at all. If we outrun our resources, particularly our food resources, we are going to crash. You know, and, and, and the process of crash will not be a pretty one. I wrote about that in my food book. I mean, basically, once the food runs out in any given area, you have vast storms of refugees crossing the borders you have wars breaking out, civil wars and international wars. Some of those wars will probably go nuclear. So, you know, if the, if the food supply collapses worldwide, and it is in danger of collapsing uh, due to climate, due to loss of soil and loss of water, if it collapses, then, you know, you've got a very ugly picture and the population can go with it quickly. So, you know, it, it's in our interest to try and fix these things before that situation arises. Most people who die of chemical poisoning die of air pollution. Okay, so they're people living in inner city areas and they're breathing smog and they're dying of lung diseases and heart disease and cancer. So uh, agriculture is an important part of it because, of course, we all eat three meals a day or, you know, if we can. Um, and farmers have, uh, you know, I, I understand farmers. I've been working with them for over 50 years. Um, and I sympathise with the dilemma that they have. And I, I'm not going to say ban all chemicals in agriculture because some of them are harmless. <clears throat> but we honestly don't know which ones are harmless and which ones are not. And you have uh, situations like you, you get rid of DDT and you replace it with, uh, you know, um, uh, the various other pesticides and, and, and they turn out to be bad for you. And then you replace them with something else that hasn't been properly tested and you, your bumblebees start dying and, and, you know, so unfortunately at the moment, all we're doing now is coming up with a new chemical and making the same mistake over and over again. Oh, absolutely. We're doing it in plastics as well. You that, say BPA free, but then, you know, what about BPS? I mean, it, it is claimed by the chemical industry that if we stopped spraying our crops, um, basically a third of the world would die, you know, very quickly because, you know, the, the, the yield of those crops would come down terrifically due to pest attacks and, and um, weed competition and so forth. But, you know, so you can't just stop something. You know, once you've set up a system like that, you, you've got to find other ways to solve the problem, whether it's insect pests or, or whether it's a, a weed competition and things like that. And there are other ways. So we mustn't be blind to them. And, and there are many farmers that I know uh, who style themselves regenerative farmers who are doing exactly that. They are coming up with systems for farming or agriculture that are basically much more resilient to climate and drought and things like that, but also use far fewer external inputs. They consist of managing the agricultural ecosystem so it is more productive for man and beast and for, for nature. So, you know, and, and this is really taking off like a rocket at the mm, moment. Worldwide. It is, it's exciting. Regenerative agriculture is on the go. Mm -hmm. and, and many, many farmers saying, look, I, I, I use chemicals, but I, I don't really like it. And I'm not too sure whether they're good for me or not. And, you know, cancer rates, I've got to tell you, among farmers are very high mm. due to these, the use of these chemicals. Um, farmers are the primary victims, far worse than consumers. So, uh, you know, it will be good if we can minimise our use of certain toxins in agriculture. And the consumer has a tremendous role to play here Huge. by choosing the products mm. that have minimal chemical treatment. Couldn't yeah. agree more, Julian. I actually said in, a, in my um, launch newsletter to my community just today, uh, it is just so important that we fill farmers with the confidence that the market exists. Anyone who can afford to make a transition, even in just a few items in your basket, 
start there and they'll know, oh, wow, gosh, we're just, you know, our carrot sales are going down, but all the organic farmer down the road, he's going nuts. Like maybe I should transition. Well, more importantly, the organic farmer is probably getting a better price for them. Yeah. And, and you notice yeah. that, that the eggs are $7 a dozen mm. in the supermarket if they're from free-range chooks. Mm. So, you know, and people are prepared to pay that money. Oh, well, yeah. They don't shop entirely on price. Now, I, there's a lot of myth preached about this, that the consumers shop on price. They don't. If they want to keep their, their kids eating uh, healthy food and things like that, they will pay a little bit extra. And let's face it, you pay a bit more. I mean, our food is 11% of our household expenditure now. Mm. But my grandparents, it was 33% of their household expenditure. Yeah. So we had a dramatic reduction. We've, we've, we've bought, you know, flat screen TVs. We've bought facelifts. We've bought holidays <laughs> in, in uh, you know, Indonesia. Got bigger lips. Absolutely. Yeah, all the things. All these other consumables. We've, we've bought smartphones, you know, we can spend a little more to get better quality food and we can reward farmers better for producing safe, clean, healthy, fresh produce. Now, you mentioned the transport thing. You know, if we want to avoid climate change, we have to get climate emissions down in every area. We have to get them down in agriculture and food, which produces 30% of the world's climate drivers, basically. Now, an easy way to do that is stop buying food from 2,000 or 10,000 kilometres away and buy it locally. So there's going to be a boom in urban farming. It's already starting to happen. And peri-urban farming, you know, uh, systems of food production that don't involve land or water. I mean, urban food production... Uh, can can make do with 95% less land and 90% less water. It's incredible, Again, isn't it? I'm talking about hydroponics and, and, and uh, biocultures and, and all of those sorts of things. Our cities can probably go close to feeding themselves if they really wanted to, but mm. obviously they would want to import their camembert from France and things like that. So, so you know, and perhaps no harm in producing a small high-value product. But to be honest with you, you know, most of what you eat, could be grown locally. Yeah. It should be grown locally and it should be seasonal and fresh. Um, and, you know, it should be a joy. Mm, that's right. Or a freeze, frozen bag, you know, not, yeah. not something that's been processed by industry and chemicals added to it that you didn't ask for. Mm. Uh, so Pressed so, into fancy shapes and uh, injected with fancy flavours. Yeah. Well, mm. I, I, I might just explain that, that the chemicals in your food are really not the ones that were used by the farmer on the farm. farmer mm. might use one or 2,000 chemicals on the farm, different chemicals. But there's around about 6,000 different chemicals that get added to the food when it is processed. And these are preservatives and food dyes. You know, food dyes are made from coal and oil. Mm. How many parents do you know feed their children on coal and oil? <laughs> I do a, I used to do a, a presentation to preschoolers. They were four, five years old, you know, the final stage before they head off to school. And I would show them a picture of a really gorgeous, well, gorgeous by any definition, modern definition, cupcake, bright, fancy rainbow um, little crystals pressed onto the top. And um, and I would say, so who who has had one of these cupcakes? And I am. And they're all very excited to say. And I said, do you know where all these colours come from? And let me tell you a little story. And then I, I show them a picture of a, a parent filling up at the petrol station. And then I show them a picture of an oil rig out at sea with like petroleum spewing out, crude oil spewing out into the, the sky. And um, then I show them a picture of a um, candy factory where these little, um, I can't even, I can't even verbalise what those things are called, but anyway, like little coloured candies that go on to um, decorate the cupcakes. And, uh, and I say, you know, do, does the, do you realise that those are made with that stuff and does that look like food to you? And they're like, no. And they get very serious. And I think we forget that the, the education can start very, very young at these 
in these concepts and you just make it age appropriate explanations, goodies and baddies and, you know, all that kind of stuff that little people can relate to. And, um, and then you hand out the blueberries and the strawberries and all of a sudden little Jimmy, who never touched the fruit before, hooks into it with, zeal- you know, zealous enthusiasm because well, he's- Let me stop you there mm. because strawberries are the most polluted fruit on the planet. Well, yes, that, I mean, that is true. I, I, when I, when I was you. growing up mm. and you, had kept, you picked a strawberry and kept it for three days, mm. it went hairy. Yeah. It went green and white and hairy within, within the space of three days. Mm. They in the supermarket, they're, they're they're hard as rocks, and they don't go green and hairy for two weeks, three weeks. The reason is they're saturated, mm. saturated in in fungicides, and fungicides yeah. are among the most toxic chemicals that you can possibly use because a fungus is a really tough thing, and if you're going to kill it, you've got to use a tough chemical. So, so the problem with strawberries is they've got those little seeds all over the outside. And the chemical gets in behind the seeds and you eat the chemical. It doesn't matter how well you wash the strawberry because the chemical is water resistant. Okay, so a lot of these chemicals do not dissolve in water. And when you wash your, your, your veggies as you, as you were taught to do, um, the chemical doesn't come off, I'm afraid. It goes straight into your cooking uh, or into your salad. So, you know... This is one reason we need to clean it up. Now, strawberries are a problem. Um, you know, avocados, for example, are not a problem. They, they, they have hardly any chemical in them. Apples are a problem because when they've sprayed the apple, they harvest the apples and then they wax, put a wax coat around the apple to make it nice and shiny, make it grab it in the supermarket. But the wax coat, if you eat the skin, you're eating the chemicals that the apple was sprayed with. So, you know, the, there, is a, there is a real problem with this chemical agriculture that we've developed. All Absolutely. Right. You know, um, Good-looking fruit, but it it's not safe. No, it's not safe. Thank you, God I take organic fruits to my presentations. There's a little bit of respite there at least. Mm. Mm. So we, we can, you know, the industry is not going to change itself. Rather like I mentioned with the chickens and, and the eggs, it has to be changed by the consumers. The consumers have to send a signal. We do not want to feed our kids on fungicide, please. Please, Mr. Grape Grower, Mr. Strawberry Grower, you know, we will have to get used to a new way or they will have to find other ways to discourage the funguses. And there are other ways. There are biological ways to discourage fungus that that are non-toxic, for example. So it's just that chemicals have become the cheapest, easiest solution. And the people who make them do not care if you ultimately die of cancer or something else, you know, as a result of this chemical cocktail, this vast cocktail of chemicals, not just in your food, but in your air, you know, the the stuff that's coming out of your sofa right now, the stuff that's coming out of the plastic desk in your office, the stuff that's coming out of the dashboard of your motor car on a sunny day, all of that is highly toxic. So you're bathed in this stuff from birth to death. We have to get a lot of it out of our systems. And we don't do much research in uh, synergistic effects of, co- of chemical cocktails that get put together, do we? It's just starting up. It's been going five or ten years, but it's terribly difficult science. I mean, the cocktail I'm talking about, think of it, 350,000 chemicals manufacture and then on top of that there's all the other chemicals that we release when we you know we release soil we, we release uh, you know a whole lot of things just going around the planet um so so we've created this vast chemical mess really and uh it, it is much worse than climate change in the long run because it's going to damage our ability to survive it's going to damage our health it's going to damage our reproduct ability to reproduce I mean, around the world now, especially in Western societies, men, the sperm count of men has dropped by 60%, right? And women are also experiencing higher levels of infertility. There are much higher levels of childhood development problems. Now, I'm talking about mental development and physical development. There's a lot of gender difficulties, you know. People are confused as to what gender they are. Why? Because they're being fed hormone disruptor chemicals that, that confuse them as to what gender they are or, you know, something or what, what their sexual preference is. You know, we're actually 
showering this stuff onto ourselves and wondering why we get these strange effects. You know, men are getting smaller penises, um, you know, and, and women are getting all sorts of hormonal disruption uh, that's, that's very unpleasant. So we've really got to start asking ourselves, well, you know, is this chemical bath a good thing for us? Uh, or is it just convenient and is it making somebody rich who doesn't actually care? <laughs> I dare say the latter, in, for the most part anyway. Um, and so there's a lot of research to uh, illustrate that we're actually being dumbed down by the toxicity as well, right? Look, this is very new. What mm. we do know is that the human IQ is falling by about three points per decade. Okay, now you can take an example. You can look at the town of Port Pirie in South Australia where we know that the lead falling on the, on the community from the smelter, uh, is, and it's been doing that for 120 years, that smelter, and we've known about it since 1924, that it's bad for kids, it's poisoning them. I mean, we've known lead is a poison, a brain poison, since the ancient Romans. We've known for over 2,000 years that, 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 that lead damages the brain. Now, in the case of Port Pirie, they were able to actually measure this and children with a high level of lead in their blood were found to have proportionately lower IQ, lower intelligence than the other ones, or than the children they measured in a, in a neighbouring town that didn't have a lead problem. So that's a pretty crystal clear example uh, that you can have a much lower IQ if you damage the brain of a young child. Now, at the moment, it's not just lead, but there's dozens of other things that damage the brain. Hundreds of them. I think there's about 1,500 chemicals that are now linked in some way with brain damage. And, and this is probably, now, this is an inference at this stage. But, you know, when you release that much neurotoxin and you start seeing a lot of people getting dumber, you know, you, you have to suspect that there is a link. You know, apply your Occam's razor. What is the most likely explanation? And let's test that hypothesis first. And this is what is starting to happen now. We can't say definitively that, that brain damaging chemicals are causing the human race to get dumber, but the evidence is that the human race is getting dumber. <laughs> and what is causing it? There is no rational explanation. People say things like, oh, it must be, you know, iPhones or it must be uh, tell too much television or stuff like that. Nonsense. Um, you know, go for the most obvious explanation uh, because this brain damage is occurring in societies that don't use a lot of smartphones or don't watch a lot of television. You know, so you've got to look at the evidence. Um, and, and what are the consequences of this? If we produce a dumber race of human beings uh, and at, at the current rate, we're going to be 25% dumber than, our, than the World War II generation by the time we hit 2050 they're not going to be able to solve these great existential threats. The food crisis, the climate crisis, the chemical poisoning crisis, you know, the nuclear weapons crisis, all of these things are coming together at the same time. And they require real brain power type response to deal with them. If we've damaged our brains and we can't think properly, and the evidence is starting to be there, you've got to say, you know, what happened in Brexit? What happened with the election of Trump in America? I mean, these are starting to look like somewhat brain-damaged electorates to me. You know, what happens in Australia? You know, people are voting for stupid things and stupid leaders. And that's not the way to get out of your problems, unfortunately. Um, we, need, we need a more responsible electorate, uh, you know, that, that is capable of thinking and analysing what it is told. Um, because you can't trust what you're told. You, have to, you really have to apply your common sense and your intelligence. But unfortunately, we're losing that intelligence. And, you know, that, that uh, is a real worry because it was our intelligence that got us where we are today. You know, it lifted us from the time we discovered fire 1.5 million years ago, that we discovered that fire, we were not afraid of fire, but leopards were afraid of fire. So they stopped eating the kids when you had a fire outside the cave. You know, basically that was the first great technological leap by humans, pre And we've been doing it ever since. So we're, we're damn good survivors. We're damn good at using this thing in our head. Our heads got big. Women have difficulty giving birth because we were holding in so much, so much, you know, mental ability. 
our intelligence was growing as we sat around that fire and exchanged ideas and thoughts and, and you know, basically that's why we've got a big head compared to our body. Um, you know, so intelligence is vital for our survival. If we give it away, and we are doing at the moment, then our survival comes under question. Interesting. Big, very big. So does the does the earth detox start with the me detox? Does it start with us? No, it, it starts with how big is the problem? Because that is the thing that science does not know yet. So I'm trying to fill in the answer there and say, so this is a six times larger than climate change and it's 10 times more deadly. Uh, and, and, and you better pay attention because it's the biggest killer of human beings that has ever happened in the world. So, you know, we're not, we're just ignoring the problem at the moment, as we were ignoring the, the climate problem back in the 1980s, right? 1970s, 1980s, a few scientists knew what was going on, but, uh, but not many other people did. Um, but this is a problem, as I say, a whole, you know, it's, it's much larger um, than, than climate change. So in my books, you'll find, I say that there are, 10 mega threats. There are 10 threats bearing down on us all at the same time. And they're all connected. And they're all driven by this huge population and, and demand for stuff. You know, so we, we've got to somehow get out of that, you know, that, that vibe and, and, you know, contract our population, contract our demand, recycle our goods, stop polluting. So if you want to clean your body, you know, the only way you can do it is to clean up your environment. Because you know you can't influence what you breathe. You can't screen out all the toxic toxins that are coming out of your sofa or your motor car. Breathe in. You can choose a sofa that hasn't got foam rubber in it. You can choose one that you know that's perhaps padded with I don't know coconut fiber or something or other. Mm. Yeah, but at the moment those are a privilege to be able to afford. You know, a lot of them are far more expensive. Yeah, but that will change. You know, Mm. once demand goes up cost comes down it, it's true in, in, in any commodity so you know as the demand increases people can produce these things much more affordably but to get the demand up we have to get people educated or aware of the problem and that's what you're doing that's what I'm doing Earth Deep is about saying here's a bloody big problem humans but if we've got solutions and I list you know a good 10 solutions at the back of the book um, the first one is we have a right not to be poisoned. All our grandparents, all the humans through the whole of history enjoyed that right. Nobody since World War II has enjoyed that right. Okay, this industrial pollution is all around us. And since the 1970s, the chemical pollution has increased five or six fold. So, you know, it's unavoidable. The only way to get rid of it is to actually stop producing these things, clean it up. But if we have a right not to be poisoned under the human, the Charter of Human Rights, then at least it draws attention to the gravity of the problem. At least it's something that you can put on different companies and say, you're breaching the human rights code if you poison people. At the moment, they get rewarded for poisoning people because they make lots of money on the stock market. Unfortunately, you know, people are rewarding them for poisoning and killing human beings. We've got to stop doing that. But let me say, you know, if you want to solve the climate crisis, how do we do it? We leave all the oil and the coal in the ground. We don't produce any more oil or coal or gas because they are the source of the climate crisis. But guess what? They are the source of three quarters of the chemical crisis too. Right. So if you leave all the coal and the oil and the gas in the ground, no more chemicals are going to be made from that source. They're going to be made from natural sources like plants and like algae and things like that. They're going to be much softer, more benign, safer chemicals than the ones we've got today, which are basically the offspring of a military chemistry that grew up in World Wars One and Two. Yeah. Oh, I feel like I need to keep taking deep breaths, Julian. <laughs> I'm so oh, sorry. Just be careful what you're inhaling. Well, 
<laughs> if I could show you, if I could move my screen right now, I have my little compact Winix air filter right next to me. <laughs> so don't worry, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid on the uh, at least do what you can to control your own inner environment. Well, one thing gave um, me a shock. My, mm -hmm. my own son, uh, when his firstborn son was born, mm -hmm. he put a, a, one of those uh, pollution monitors in, in, in the child's bedroom. Yeah. And this is living in, in, in inner Brisbane. Now, when the window was open, the pollution was quite average. But when the window was closed, the pollution went off the charts. Absolutely. Something as simple as cooking. from the motor cars in the street. Mm -hmm. It was coming out of the furniture and the paintwork and, you know, the carpets and the all that stuff. Yeah, and the, the cooking from frying. It's, it's unbelievable when you close the windows how bad the inner air quality gets. Uh, I'm a huge proponent for air filtration while while we shift towards a safer world in general i just think it's uh it's it's essential for people who live in urban areas but also for people who are surrounded by agricultural chemicals still in regional areas yeah. mm. so uh earth detox how can we find your book is it in all the bookstores uh is it going to be easy for us to track down it's best to buy it either from the publisher, Cambridge University Press. Wonderful. Or else from Amazon or uh, Booktopia or one of the big... I'll go with Booktopia because Jeff's doing fine, thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't mind if, if, if Jeff makes money out of spreading the truth. I mean... Uh, that's Yeah, that's fair enough. That's us sending a little message to Jeff as to what, what we want in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been enlightening, inspiring, and uh, reminded us all of the big picture concerns in the world and what we can do uh, every day in what we choose to bring into our homes, onto our plates, uh, put on our skin. We're very powerful beings, really, uh, in getting the message for the world we want out there. Thank you very much, Alex. I enjoyed speaking. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Lotox Life or one word, or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart S T U A R T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. Uh, and of course, lotoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low-Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 Euro and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lotoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.